0: So have you ever tried to get the autograph of, of someone famous or, or someone important? Have tried to get their autograph in your autograph book or, or on a piece of paper or something? Jim Shea is a regular autograph collector at Progressive Field where the Cleveland Indians baseball team plays. He has a, a collection of 1,500 autographs. He's got a lot of autographs. He doesn't have a, a big man cave with, with lots of, you know, baseballs and bats and gloves and jerseys and home plates that have been signed. In fact, all of his autographs are, are kind of in just a few boxes that kind of don't take up a whole lot of room. A couple of weeks ago, Cleveland.com asked him for some of his advice, some of his tips, so to speak, for seeking out autographs. And these are some of the things that he said. Players know if you're a true autograph collector or if you're just someone out there with memorabilia trying to do something or sell it. He said because a true autograph collector doesn't come up to the player and say, hey, sign my baseball on the sweet spot, sign the, the bat on the sweet spot, sign the jersey in this, you know, unique place. An and autograph seeker is really truly just seeking an autograph. He also said that he likes a, just a plain blue ink big Fine Point pen. You can find a pen just like that in the halls on your way out this morning. He said the, 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 the simplicity of that pen always works because he said sometimes other pens, they, they just fade and, and they mess up. He also said that it's one thing to, to ask for an autograph outside the ballpark. He said, but you should respect a player's privacy, and if they're out in a restaurant with their family, just leave them alone and let them enjoy their time with their family. But Jim really, in a way, kind of doesn't even see the autograph As the big, gigantic, important thing in his autograph collection. This is what he said My collection is based on having an ongoing experience with the team. I like spending a moment with the player. The byproduct is the autograph collection. I can remember every one of my autographs because it's the experience, it's the experience that matters. This week, in a sense, we are celebrating our country's ongoing experience with some autographs. On July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence. But the signatures were not placed on the document, at least most of them, and not until a few weeks later in August. One of those signatures belonged to John Witherspoon. Witherspoon was a minister. He was the only active clergyman and college president to sign the Declaration of Independence. Seven weeks before he sat in a room in Philadelphia with his fellow delegates and formally adopted the Declaration, he stood on campus at the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton University, and he delivered a sermon. The second part of his sermon strategically dealt with why we celebrate this week, but the first part of his sermon was pretty significant. This is just a few things that he said in the first part. I do not blame your ardor in preparing for the resolute defense of your temporal rights, but consider I beseech you the truly infinite importance of the salvation of your souls." Is it of much moment whether you and your children shall be rich or poor, at liberty or in bonds? And is it of less moment, my brethren, whether you shall be the heirs of glory or the heirs of hell? Have you assembled together willingly to hear what shall be said on public affairs and to join in imploring the blessing of God on the councils of arms and of the United Colonies? And... Can you be unconcerned what shall become of you forever when all the monuments of human greatness shall be laid in ashes? Wow. What's he talking about? He's talking about freedom. True freedom. What kind of freedom is that? Well, let's find out. Listen to Psalm 23, verses 1 and 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I fear no evil. What is evil? Well, the dictionary defines it as something profoundly morally wrong. But in this day and age, what's profoundly morally wrong? I mean, it seems really that that we're living in a time when, when you want to ask a question about what's moral and what's immoral, that there seems to be this accepted, mystical, mythical, algebraic equation of personal opinion. And what's right and wrong can be determined by you. As long as you believe in what you believe and as long as you're sincere in your beliefs, then you can determine what's right and what's wrong. You can determine what's moral. But if that's true, then, then how would we know if something is actually morally wrong? I mean, do we just look at what people would do? Dr. Steve Taylor is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University in the United Kingdom. In a discussion article on the real meanings of good and evil, this was his description of evil. Evil people are those who are unable to empathize with others. As a result, their own needs and desires are of paramount importance. They are selfish, self-absorbed, and narcissistic. And then he goes on to say this. Other human beings are just objects to them, which is what makes their brutality and cruelty possible. Now, clearly, those are some thoughts that we would connect with someone who's doing something profoundly morally wrong. But... What if we don't see them do something cruel? What if we don't see them do something brutal? Is it it only evil if it's physically carried out? Well, the physical action is a good place to start. Lying, stealing, adultery, murder. These are things that that we can see and and recognize and and label possibly as, as evil. But again, what if we don't see anything? What if there's no outward actions? What if there's, there's nothing happening that we're able to see with our eyes? Is it only evil if it happens where we see it? Before he wrote Psalm 23, King David wrote, I'm sorry, after he wrote Psalm 23, King David wrote these words in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, against you, you only. I have sinned and, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. And blameless when you judge. Think of idolatry or blasphemy against God. Those may be things that you don't actually see, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean they aren't happening. And so David is is writing, and, and he's writing of the outward actions, but he's not ignoring the inward actions, because the inward actions are actually sin against God. And why would he say that even unseen things are evil? Well, it's because he's setting up a moral standard, an objective moral standard. Now, I realize today that we live in a time where the concept of an objective moral standard is not exactly cool and hip. But if you just kind of simply think about life in general, everything In life is almost defined by objective moral standards. For instance, a stoplight has three colors. You can tell the officer that you're a greenitarian and you don't believe in the color red anymore. But the reality is that's probably not going to get you out of the ticket for running the red light. You can, thank you Carl, I love our trooper amen in that. You may tell everybody that you have a strong stomach, but listen, if you accidentally leave a grocery bag with a can of tuna and a jar of mayonnaise in the trunk of your car in Columbia, South Carolina during the summer for 46 days, and on the 47th day you discover that bag in your trunk and you pull it out and you make some tuna salad there in the parking lot, buddy, you're on your own. No matter what you say about your stomach. And you can stand there and you can argue with that lady at the register at the home improvement store all you want. But if you bought a brass wing nut that cost a dollar and you gave her a $5 bill, she does not owe you four ones and four quarters. That is not how that works. You see, our world is defined by objective standards. And our hearts and our minds and our souls, we know that there has to be a a moral, objective standard. And the Bible says that standard is the one true, holy God. Matt Slicks puts it this way, evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. See, I am not holy, holy, holy. You are not holy, holy, holy. But God, God is holy, holy, holy. He is other, other, other. He alone is God. But let's just say I don't believe in God. Even if if I don't believe in God, I know in my heart and my mind and my soul that, that there has to be some way for me to figure out what evil is. And the only way that can happen is if I have something to compare it to. And whatever I compare it to has to be infinitely and perfectly good. Otherwise, I'd have no idea what evil is. Because if there's not something that's infinitely and perfectly good, then that means I'll pull out the accepted, mystical, mythical, algebraic equation of personal opinion, and I'll look at something that's evil and say, "Ah, it's not that bad in my opinion. There has to be something infinitely and perfectly good. There has to be a standard, and our souls know it very well. And here's one thing that we've discovered over the last 80 years or so, depending on how old you are. No one at work has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. No one at school has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. No one at church has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. No one at the state house has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. No one at the White House has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. And no one at your house has ever been infinitely and perfectly good. But here is what the psalmist writes about the God of the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. This is the nature of God. He is actually good. He doesn't just do good things. It is his character. He is good. He is infinitely and perfectly good. But someone might ask, well, if God is infinitely and perfectly good, then, I mean, why is there evil in this world? Well, I hope you figured it out by now. This is one sermon, and these are some of the biggest questions known to humanity. And I did not crack a thousand on my SAT. And so if you're thinking that in just one sermon that I'm going to get all of these answered so that you'll go home and just feel great about life, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. There's just too much in these. But I do want to give a, a gracious offer of an answer of the problem of evil. And it starts all the way back in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very perfect. Is that what it says in the scripture? No, it says it was exceedingly, abundantly, wonderfully good, but the verse does not say it was very perfect. John Frame says this, perfect would mean not only good, but also incapable of becoming evil. Could God have made a better world than this one? Certainly. He could have made what we call the new heavens and the new earth right back at the beginning. Why then did he choose not to do so? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) What kind of answer is that? Man, boo. Uh. -uh. That's that's not an answer. Actually, it is an answer. And and really, it's a, a faithful answer. See, here's the interesting irony. Intellectual society and and maybe popular culture, they seem to demand the right to use the accepted mystical, mythical algebraic equation of personal opinion to determine what may or may not be evil. In other words, there are no absolute answers to anything. Our our culture, our society today, they, they seem to demand that you on your own can rationally and reasonably Figure out what's evil based on whatever philosophy of life that you choose to have. So there are no absolute answers. At least that seems to be the cry of of culture. Until God enters the conversation. And then the skeptics of the world demand absolute answers. I don't know becomes an evil answer to the problem of evil, to the skeptic. And yet the reality is, I don't know is a faithful answer, even though it may not be appealing. And here's why. If a person is unwilling to accept I don't know for some of the most difficult, hardest questions in the universe for humanity, then they are acting outside of the parameters of humanity. Because we cannot know everything. We we can't. But here's the other irony in this thought. The demand for absolute answers can be found in God. Matter of fact, it can only be found in God. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a a definite, absolute answer to whatever your question may be. This is what it means. It means that in the God of the Bible, you get the most absolute being In the universe. It's who he is. You get the only one who is infinitely and perfectly good. It is his nature. It is who he is. So what does all this have to do with David talking about God being his shepherd? Well, listen again to what he says. I fear no evil. The world is full of evil. The world is full of actions and attitudes that are profoundly and morally wrong. The world is full of attitudes and actions that are rebellious or at the very least contradict the holy nature of God. And this evil can be found in the Middle East. And this evil can be found in the middle of your kitchen. This evil can be found in the classroom, and it can be found in the boardroom. This evil can be found in the chambers of government, and this evil can be found even in the sanctuary of the church. Last Sunday, I I used something in the sermon very innocently and and very unknowingly, and I found out later that it's something that social media uses for evil. Evil's everywhere. And the enemy, the enemy is constantly sending out his evil agents. But the good news is, David says, if you're a Christian, you will never have to deal with evil. Is that what he says here? Doesn't sound like it. He he doesn't say there will be no evil. He doesn't say that you may not be in the presence of evil. He also doesn't say that he's going to be afraid of evil or that he's going to be happy about evil. See, being troubled over evil and being afraid of evil, those are two different things. Having grief over evil and having panic over evil. Those are not the same things. Charles Spurgeon said this. David does not say there shall not be any evil, but I will fear no evil. As if even his fears, those shadows of evil, were gone forever. And then he goes on. We feel a thousand deaths in fearing one, but the psalmist was cured of the disease of fearing. I will fear no evil, not even the evil one himself. I will not dread the last enemy, I will look upon him as a conquered foe. Those are strong words. His fears are gone forever. He was cured of the disease of fearing. He looked upon the enemy, Satan, as a conquered foe? How in the world does that happen? How can a a person experience that? Here's how. Because the Lord was his shepherd. That's it. It was all defined by his relationship with God. He would not fear evil because the Lord, the one who is infinitely and perfectly good, That God is his shepherd. As an American, you have a whole lot of freedoms, all kinds of freedoms. And I want to challenge you this week as we celebrate to to prayerfully and practically thank God for your freedoms. Thank our veterans for your freedom. Thank those that are serving in our armed forces right now, protecting that freedom so that it stays a reality. And also as Christians, we have a whole lot of freedoms. I'm just going to give us a couple, just two. The first is this. You have the freedom to be afraid of evil. You're free to do that. But I will say this. It's the lesser of the two freedoms I'm going to give you. But you can. you, You can be afraid of evil. But I'll also say this. It is the most damaging, the most discouraging The most depressing of the two freedoms. So the second freedom is you have the freedom to not be afraid of evil. You have that freedom. So how do you live that out? Or maybe put another way, why is it that you have that freedom? Just before he was arrested and crucified, this is what Jesus said to his closest friends. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this world we will have tribulation. In this world we will have troubles. In this world we will face evil every single day but at the exact same time in christ even while we are in this world we can have peace peace not fear in the middle of the tribulation peace not fear in the middle of the trouble peace not fear in the middle of these evil days how how is that possible What's possible because Jesus promised his friends that He had overcome the world, and Jesus has overcome evil. How? How did he do that? Because Jesus overcome has overcome death. The, the cross is. It's not a cute symbol of religion. It is the defining picture of our freedom. Jesus died, but he rose again. He overcame death. Octavius Winslow said this. Yes, responds the dying believer. I fear no evil. Death cannot sting me. Christ has died The grave cannot hold me. Christ is risen. Sin cannot condemn me. Christ has atoned. Satan, Satan cannot touch me. Christ has conquered. The fetters I wore so long and so wearily now fall broken and shattered at my feet and I am free. Why? Because the Lord is his shepherd And he will not fear evil because his king, his redeemer, his savior has overcome the world. And he has overcome death. And he is risen and he reigns. That is why we do not fear evil because we are actually, truly, eternally free.